Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. I'm Travis Dow. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemian podcast. And tonight's show comes to us from a listener, Steve C. Thank you very much for the recommendation. This is actually a great one and he's, he sent me a PDF that was something like 140 pages long and it was, ama- it was an amazing read. It, it, like this guy is super fascinating. Um, who we're talking about today is Cornelis Jakobsun Drebel and he's a kind of a like Edison of his time. He's like this crazy inventor way ahead of his time and in some ways he actually stands alone in the 17th century I would say from reading some of this, these stories. Um, we're talking the golden age of alchemy and even um, even compared to the other guys out there this guy has an amazing story to tell so I'm, I'm really excited that um, someone sent this to me and, and I got to hear about it and he's Dutch uh, some of the highlights we're going to talk about here is, is he's Dutch, which is weird. He, he moved to England. He lived in England. He served in uh, King James's court. He moved to Prague and served what? You know who. You, you thought we weren't going to say it this episode, did you? No, it's going to happen. No, that's, he was in Rudolf II's court. That is actually a really interesting story, even among people in Rudolf II's court. Well, yeah, think about the CV. You've got a, if you had a CV out there for your alchemical sort of background... You want to have, you know, be in the court of Rudolf II. It's, yeah. it's got to be some, some good uh, creds right there. Yeah, and yeah, he has an interesting story there. He was into optics in a, in a really amazing way. Um, then obviously we wouldn't be talking about it if he wasn't into like chemistry and alchemy and that sort of thing. And he did the, he kind of built the first navigable submarine in 1620. And it's actually cooler than that even sounds. So uh, there's that coming. And then... We got my nerd senses tingling. Should I say that? Should yeah. I not? <laughs> Just his body senses. It works the same thing. <laughs> was he was into like measurement and sort of control systems? That was a really interesting read. So this is actually what got him the uh, you know different monarchs' attention was because because he had some amazing ways of like controlling um, all sorts of stuff, pressure and and uh, temperature and all kinds of stuff. Then optics and, and chemistry, like I said. Um, we'll kind of break down his life a little bit. So basically, he lived from 1572 to the 7th of November, 1633. So again, just classic golden age of, of alchemy here. And Cornelis Drebel was born in Alkmaar, which is in Holland, and to an Anabaptist family. And the, the Anabaptist part is also kind of interesting just, just you know, to kind of round out his character and, and um, you know, read about him. It is interesting that... Uh, there's there's one quote I have here. Um, I, I guess I'll just read this quote here. So it says, quote, he lives according to the laws of nature and believes in nothing. Um, he would not consider himself insulted by the action or word of another in connection with anything that might be done to him. If anyone abuses him, his, he answers not a word unless they are right and are decent folk, and he does not exile himself in the very least. He carries no sword neither in the country nor in town, and he would not defend himself were he attacked, although he is powerful and strongly built. 
And then there's other descriptions of, of like, his very modest dress, almost, like, kind of grungy looking. And, you know, mind you, he's in, like, royal courts. And he's, like, very humble, very, you know, didn't carry a sword in a time where everybody did. He would have stood out pretty... pretty Yeah, I I think so. And we've talked about Anabaptists on this show, as well as on the Bohemian podcast. And they they were a very unique bunch of what we call later medieval hippies. Yeah, you know, I, remember yeah. We, I remember we mentioned the Münster Uprising a few times, like when we talked about Faust, and yeah, like that's that's kind of interesting. So yeah, like really humble, you know, kind of a pacifist in many ways. Um, although, as we'll later talk about, he did create some crazy weapons that were, you know, sci-fi for the day, I guess. But um, in any case, after some years at a Latin school in Alkmaar, um, he attended the academy in Harlem, also in North Holland, not the other Harlem, and... Um, his teachers at the academy were Hendrik Goldsius, who's an engraver, painter, alchemist, and humanist. Um, I might do a show on him. He's also a really interesting person. And then there's Cornelis, Cornelisun of Harlem. And he's none other than the inventor of the wind-powered sawmill, which is... Very Dutch. Very Dutch, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Well, Travis, he also uh, kind of... Fluid around the same circles as, as some of the fr- famous names we know well on this podcast, yeah. right? So, uh, Francis Bacon from uh, 1561 to 1628 was his lifetime, and that he was, of course, a mathematician. Henry Briggs, uh, then there was uh, some medical men who were, who were uh, busily making alchemical experiments, such as Robert Flood, Raphael Thurius, uh, Joachim Mors- Morsius uh, from uh, 1593 to 1642 was his lifespan. And the translator and editor of Drebbel's works. Yeah. In fact, well, we've done a show on Francis Bacon, Robert Flood, or at least they're on the list. I don't know. And then I was thinking about Joachim Morsius, too, because he's also an interesting character. Um, yeah. It, it, so, yeah, it's, again, it's just golden age of alchemy. Like, that's, that's kind of the point I'm trying to make here, that he, he had really interesting contemporaries, and he knew a lot of them personally. When I was talking about his dress, so the secretary of the Duke of Württemberg, Wormsaf von Mendenheim, writes... In 1609, His Royal Highness went to the park in Eltham to see the per- Perpetuum Mobile. That's a perpetual motion machine, which I'll get back to later. That's kind of what his claim to fame, really. The inventor's name is Cornelis Drebbel, who was born in Alkmaar, a very light-haired and handsome man and very gentle manners, altogether different from such-like characters. As in the, the average hoi polloi of the kind of charlatan alchemists and, you know... Used so, car salesman. Yeah, so he was, like, guy, very right. humble, and he knew his stuff. Like, he was just a, a genius in many ways. Constantine Huygens uh, informs us that he looks like a Dutch farmer, right? Yeah. That would, his fair complexion and light hair, of course, and big build. Depresque gives us uh, most of the details that we possess to this day. According to his own statement, he received from the Kufler brothers. And this was about the year 1627, Travis. So, quote-unquote, he is a man of good standing, sharp-witted, and full of ideas about great inventions. Returning to the life of the said Cornelius Drebbel, Kuffler narrated that as his years increased, his inventions also increased. The latter welled up spontaneously out of his consciousness without benefit from the reading of books, which he always despised, which is kind of interesting there, isn't it? Uh, Being firmly convinced that the truth and perfection of the sciences lay in the secrets of nature in which that they are all concealed, and it is recalled that he had reached a considerable age before he could understand Latin or speak it, and that he, he even taught himself without anybody to teach him. Right? So uh, when you say a self-made man, mm-hmm. this is who we're talking about. 
He lives like a philosopher and is interested only in his observations. He despises all things of the world and also its great men with he rather greet a poor man than one of worldly position. Dreville behaves like a simple and ignorant person. When he is asked whether he can make this, that, or the other thing, he says that he cannot. He only shows his real self to persons he considers intelligent or to those who desire to become so. For three or four years, he has been smoking tobacco, a thing which he used to hate. He has become so much the slave of this habit that he, that he spends most of his days and nights smoking and declares that they who do not smoke have no sense. When he meets anyone, <laughs> so maybe the original Marlboro man, if you yeah. will, all right? So when he meets anyone who, he is, who is a hard smoker he respects, he likes him very much. And in, in such a case, he is able to explain his secrets, whereas otherwise he is very uncomfortable. The habit of smoking was introduced to England, of course, by Sir Walter Raleigh, actually in the court of Queen Elizabeth. Yeah, yeah, we talked about that yeah. in the Elizabeth episode. So, so yeah. you can see the nicotine habit started kicking in. It's, yeah, so he, <laughs> he hated it at first, but then once he started smoking, Quote. He, yeah, like apparently super addicted, but then also he wouldn't even talk to anybody unless they were also a smoker. Right. So I, you know, I, yeah, I wonder if this guy had like, I don't know, he's just, just a weird cat in general, just all kinds of out there. But definitely a really smart man. It's kind of kind of like a, you know, some sort of savant in some ways. Um, but like weird social habits, you know. Well, you know, you, you also very humble. Like if someone says, "Can you build this or that?" He's like, "No, I can't." You know, "No, I have no idea." But if he probably could. Well, I mean, at the beginning of this podcast, you mentioned uh, mentioned him to something that most Americans around the world can understand in their history books as like a Thomas Alva Edison. Yeah. Right. I was thinking more like a Benjamin Franklin. But also, it, yeah, absolutely. But, but when you talk about his humbleness, that is not the trace yeah. of these other two men. Yeah, so maybe Franklin wasn't humble. Yeah, neither was Edison. Not even. I'm also thinking <laughs> Tesla, and that doesn't really no, that doesn't apply. Doesn't really work yeah. either. So he really was a man of his own. Yep. Yeah. No. I mean, he's he's a really interesting character to research. Um, so thanks again, Steve. But so so basically, Drebel has another skill, which he became a skilled engraver, and um, specifically on copper plate, and and then of course he also had an interest in alchemy. And um, so to run through his life a little bit more, so in, in 1595, he married Sophia Jan's daughter Goldsius, younger sister of Hendrik, and settled at Alkmaar. They had six children, of which four survived. Um, I think two of them were stillbirths, if I remember correctly. And Drebel worked initially as a painter, engraver, and cartographer. And he actually had a lot of skill. I mean, it, it, there was a, a bunch of stuff that I left out of the show just on his engravings, and some of them are still around today and quite famous. But he was in constant need of money because of his kind of, well, because of the prodigal lifestyle of his wife. Uh, I think we've heard that one before, too. <laughs> in 1598, he obtained a patent for a water supply system and a sort of perpetual clockwork. I'll, I'll get back to those. And then in 1600, Drebel was in Middleburg. Middleburg is in the northwest of Holland. I've been there several times. Um, I don't remember much. Let me just leave it at that. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> what? So, Drebel, yeah, Drebel was in Middleburg where he built a fountain at the Norderport. So, Middleburg's a really cool town because I've been there three or four times. We have friends of the family that live there. And at his time, it was the, in the middle of an island, which is why it's called Middleburg. Now, it's in the middle of a peninsula, which is much bigger right. because... 
they, they the drained, Dutch they drained all the water because that's what they do. Yeah, yeah. it's so yeah. you can actually drive to this in the in his time it was an island. You can drive there now, and it's much bigger than it used to be. Actually, is 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 one of those places that you you may want to take a day trip from Amsterdam. If you go to Amsterdam, go oh, to it's really cool. You yeah. also can go to Harlem. That's also a great day trip to go to yeah. as well. But the, these these places were alive and well as. Centers of, of industry. And, they were, exactly. And, I was yeah. going to say, like, very industrious little towns at yeah. that time. So, in fact, there, um, that in Middleburg is where he met a maker of telescopes and learned to grind lenses for optics. And he wasn't just some average dude doing this. Like, he, you know, we'll get back to that later, too. But he, he kind of, um, he got into optics and started to, and you know, in his nature, just kind of experiment and push the boundaries of it. And he, he created a magic lantern and a camera obscura, which are both sort of projectors. He took some of these mediums to its limit. And that's, that's another thing that really impressed King James and um, also Rudolf II. So it, it, to, to the layman, this could almost seem like magic because he could project a shape and make a bear turn into a pig. And, you know, just like all these just crazy things from light and... Um, some of his friends in that field actually got reputations as magicians from the lay people because it was just, you know, brand new technology at the time. So around 1604, the Drebbel family moved to England, probably at the, the invitation of the new king, James I of England, or known as uh, the Fourth of Scotland, mm-hmm. right? And he was accommodated at Alton Palace. Drebbel worked there as a, as a mask, which we believe is some kind of performer at court. Yeah. Know, some sort of entertainment. He was attached uh, to the court of the young Renaissance crown prince, Henry. He astonished the court with his inventions, uh, the perpetual mobile that we talked about, the automatic, the hydraulic organs, um, all these wonderful optical instruments mm-hmm. we just mentioned. Uh, the Duke of Württemberg uh, came to see him uh, at work at Eltham, where he had instruments all set up for a while. Um, so, you know, he really made an impression there in England, and that kind of is a great segue to the impression he'll make in the court of Rudolf II of yeah. Prague. So that, yeah, so that got him some attention. In fact, he got quite a bit of attention while in the court of, of King James. And uh, some little-known historical f- figure heard of him, someone we've never really talked about before on the show, um, the famous Rudolf II, Holy Roman Emperor of Habsburg. I, um, he's a really interesting character. I know we've never talked about him before. Never. He, um, but <laughs> 28 times on the Bohemian podcast at least. Yeah, so... so uh, we love the guy. Yeah, I think he's on every show. Yeah. But So Drebbel's fame reached um, the Holy Roman Emperor's ears. And on October 1610, Drebbel and his family moved to Prague on the invitation of Emperor Rudolf II. And again, so we have, an, we have a podcast on Rudolf II. I think it's like, is it over an hour? We actually, on the Bohemian podcast? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, we broke it up into two. We broke yeah. it up into two, two episodes. I think I pu- and that was like maybe our second show I, ever two I, years I ago. I published it too, and yeah. I left it together, and I think it's, yeah, yeah, it's... It was something we did in the very early days of our podcast. So Rudolf II, yeah. if you haven't heard that show, it's on both our feeds, Bohemian or History of Alchemy. Definitely go listen to that. Um, it's it's great. We He's our number one favorite character. Here again, Drebbel kind of demonstrates his inventions. Now, this is a, this is a... Fun story. It's kind of a bad time to be in Rudolf's court because 1610 is when he got there. And 1611, Rudolf II was stripped of all effective power by his younger brother, Archduke Matthias, and Drebbel was imprisoned for about a year. So Matthias actually imprisoned everybody at Rudolf's court. And after Rudolf's death in 1612, Drebbel was then set free and went back to London. 
Now that's the really short version of that story. It's, it's, it's really interesting. While he was in Prague, Guglielmo de' Medici wrote a letter to Galilei, which I think both of those people you've heard of before, in which he informs him that a Fleming has come to Prague who is able to construct a perpetual mobile, so this perpetual uh, motion machine. And originally he was only supposed to stay in Prague for six months, but Rudolf II kept him there until his death. So we've heard about this before, like Rudolf II, if he likes you, he's never going to let you go. In fact, he, he imprisoned some alchemists. Uh, in Prague, he also, so he also worked on alchemical experiments, and he also worked um, for the German mint for the making of gold alloys, kind of, you know, furthering that piece of science along, let's say. Archduke Matthias may have almost put him to death after Rudolf died, but was saved when someone told him, you know what, you're about to kill the greatest man in the world, unquote. That's mm-hmm. a direct quote there. Uh, he had invented the glass bulb, perpetual mo- mobile, and when he showed him all these inf- all this information, he had designed also the fountain below. Mm-hmm. Okay, the archduke ordered Drebbel to be set free and granted an amnesty. And when this had been done, he proffered apologies for the bad treatment he had received because he was because he was not known, but said that if he would be willing to render to him the services that had been rendered to the emperor and to complete, then he would that he had begun he would double the reward the emperor had promised him in the, in, originally. Drebbel answered that he very much appreciated his offer to take him to the service, but that was not the service of the king of England, without whose orders he could not undertake nothing, and who, and who had asked him, when he left him, to let him know whether he agreed to remain in his service. The Archduke Matthew then sent an express messenger to England, but meanwhile Drebbel was sent, was sent a request to the king, begging him not to give permission for him to stay any longer, but to say that, on the contrary, he was commanded to return, for he was too too badly treated here to allow himself to be longer detained. When all this had been done by the king of England, the king promised the archduke to send him back within one or two years to finish for him which which he had begun. This little trick caused the archduke to to send him back to England in a fine carriage with a gift of two thousand dollars. Official records show that the above-mentioned sum was, was in the reality, $600. Yeah, a lot, a lot of Rudolph's and then also later Matthias's um, sums of money were just hugely exaggerated. We saw this, too, in the, was the John D. episode or something. Is Yeah. Well, to give an idea, Travis, to really sum up that, that, that little bit of story right there, he saw there was no hope, and the only way to get well, they, out... He locked him up for a year. It, yeah, I and mean, he's probably going to keep him for the rest of his life. Yeah. I mean, you know... You and, know well, so the... The the source I was reading actually kind of had it like this, that um, there was a guy that saw out of his window, he saw scaffolds being built. And he asked Matthias what the deal was with that. And and Matthias said, I'm going to put all of Rudolph's court to death. We're going to clean house. Yeah. Yeah. And at this, the guy got really sad. And he's like, including, you're also going to put Cornelis Drebbel to death? And he's like, yeah. And he's like, and that's that's that quote. He says, well, you're about to kill the greatest man in the world. Yeah. And Matthias is like, what? And he says, yeah, he built that bulb over there. And the bulb, um, yeah, so we'll get to the perpetual motion machine in a minute. But that was the perpetual motion machine, which was renowned across Europe. And he's like, you're about to kill the maker of that, you know. And so Matthias was like, all right, so, you know, show me this thing. And then he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I almost killed you, you know. (laughs) In fact, come and work for me and I'll double your wage and I'll, you know, finish all the projects. You. This is actually amazing. Finish all the projects that you started for Rudolf. Matthias wanted nothing to do with any of these of Rudolf's alchemy or anything else. Drebbel was the exception. 
that should stand for something. Like that should mean something. Cause, it does. But if you're in trouble, I mean, you're looking. You need the time's ticking. If you do one small step, your head is going to be in that noose again. Yeah. So, so Matthias sends a courier to England, and Drebel sends another courier to to the Crown Prince, saying, "When you get Matthias's letter, tell him no, because I want to come home. You know, just tell him tell him sorry, but you can't." And so the Crown Prince did that. That's another, that's another thing. When John Dee sent emails to Elizabeth the first, crickets. You know, when Drebel sends something to the crown prince, he replies right away, like, oh, no, I'm sorry, we need him here. You know, we, we'll, we'll lend you him another in a year or two, but right now I need him at my court. Like, it's unbelievable, yeah. you know? Lucky for him, yeah. actually. So uh, according to Svatek and, and Gindley, these, these are two bohemian historians, Drebel was mixed up in a case of embezzlement of money and jewels belonging to the Museum and Treasury of Prague. And the crime was perpetrated by a gentleman in waiting named Rutsky, and soon after the death of Rudolf II, this Rutsky was imprisoned with a number of others, like I mentioned, and, of course, Cornelius Drebel. Now, Rutsky committed suicide. Svatek and Grindley do not know what became of the others, but uh, Drebel was left was let go, like I mentioned, and it's, it's not known if this is really true. So he might have just gotten mixed up with the wrong crowd, you know, because, I, like I said, he worked at the Mint, so, you know... Um, some money and jewels went missing, and he was one of the suspects. Really little is known about this, this accusation. So these two historians brought this up, but it's kind of it's speculation to some degree. I mean, there's, there's records there, and, and others were, were arrested and, and either committed suicide or killed or whatever. Um, but yeah, it's, it's hard to say what, how much of a part uh, Drebel actually played in this. So um, when, he, when he went back to England, unfortunately, his patron Henry had also died, and Drebel was suddenly in financial trouble. Now, we mentioned before that he had a, a, a big passion for optics, and this is where it brings us to this part of his life at this moment, that he manufactured his glass-grinding machine optical instruments and compound microscopes with two convex lenses, for which there was a constant demand. In 1622, Constantine Huygens stayed, uh, stayed as a diplomat for more than one year in England. It, have been, it had been Cornelius that taught Constantine Huygens the art of glass grinding. That's a kind of a big deal because Const later on taught his son, the famous scientist and mathematician Christian Huygens. Yeah, who, who you may have heard of. He's kind of a big deal. And the English natural philosopher Robert Hooke may have learned the art of glass grinding from his acquaintance Johannes Kufla. Kufla is mentioned all the time, by the way, when talking about Drebel, because uh, Kufla is basically the son-in-law of Drebel. So his expertise kind of I mean, Robert Hooke is also, you know, obviously a, a known entity, and it's, it's pretty interesting. And then, you know, just to kind of, we'll come back to his inventions and stuff, but, but to, to bring his life story to a close, sort of, towards the end of his life in 1633, Drebel was involved in a plan to drain the fens around Cambridge, also very Dutch, like water. Drain it, you know. <laughs> um, but yeah, so he 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 had a a really novel. Um, approach to water pumps, which was he built a fountain in Middleburg, which was very famous, and um, did had a lot of kind of innovative ideas regarding pumps, and so this was also one of them. And then you know he tried to make money towards the end of his life, but at this point he was very poor. This is like the last year of his life, and he was running an alehouse in England, and he died in London that year. This is kind of interesting because his alehouse was kind of successful just because of his name. Like, people would hear that he's the guy that invented the perpetual motion machine, actually created a working one, or um, 
He's the guy that created a machine that had artificial ebbs and tides like the ocean. And so people would actually come by his bar, basically, just to kind of see him and get served beer by him. So it's, it's pretty interesting. We have from the Rawlinson manuscript, we know that he was a brewer and an innkeeper. And here's a quote from that. He was very poor and in his later time kept an alehouse below the London Bridge. He had an invention of going underwater, which he used so advantageously, that many persons were persuaded that he was some strange monster. It's spelled Monstar, capital M. And that means drew many to see him and drink of his ale. So again, he had the reputation. People were like, oh, you know, have you heard of the crazy barkeeper that, you know, runs that alehouse under the bridge? So a part of the collection for the understanding of brewing, baking, making cider and mead, ordering, preserving, all sorts of wines, cooking, preserved in Cambridge, probably dates from this time. Drebbel perhaps acquired in part of his knowledge of these matters from his brother-in-law, the brewer, Jakob Goltzius, during the time that he still lived in Holland. So even here, he was kind of an innovative guy when it came to like fermenting beer and, and brewing and, and even just a creative guy in the kitchen. You know, just cooking and that kind of thing. And, I mean, I'll later talk about, like, he invented certain aspects of stoves and ovens because of his um, control systems and measurement systems. So just anything he touched kind of turned to gold. Yeah. <laughs> so after his death, in keeping with the traditional sort of Mennonite or, you know, Anabaptist practice, Drebbel's estate was split between his four living children at the time of his death. So, okay, that's that's the life of him. But now... I really want to dive into his works here because it's it's just unbelievable some of the stuff that he did and really sets, sets him apart in his time. We mentioned that he would be from an American standpoint an Edison or a Franklin. Let's look at it in this in this in this sense that he would be more of a, a Nikola Tesla or a or an Emmett Brown of his time. Uh, what, like kind of, kind of a, a zany, yeah, yeah, a zany like inventor. He, he's like, <laughs> you know. Um, so uh, in some ways, it's hard to compare him to others in his own time frame of the 17th century. Uh, for whose inventions were worked out later by others, especially after the foundation of the Royal Society of London. He was a brilliant empiric researcher and innovator. Drebbel's constructions and innovations cover, in particular, these following items. Measurement and control technology. The Royal Society was later interested in his ovens and furnaces, which we'll talk about in a few moments. Uh, pneumatics, optics, chemistry, hydraulics, and pyrotechnics. Yeah, so with the, with the Staten General, he registered several patents, which again, just reminds me of Edison or someone of that nature. Now, the, the measurement and control systems, like te, you know, technology, pneumatics, whatever, however you want to categorize this. So first of all was the perpetual motion machine. Um, but then we also have that he builds and navigates with a submarine. You can't kind of take these apart because um, even in a submarine, um, there were some control systems in place to keep the air fresh and, and, you know, that kind of thing and make sure that it was at the right depth. So he had a, you know, a barometer to measure the depth and that kind of thing. Um, he even built an incubator for eggs, which is interesting. And he built a portable stove oven with an optimal use of fuel. So it was really like this efficient portable oven that he kind of created. And he was able to keep the heat on a consistent temperature by means of, again, a regulator, sort of like a thermostat deal. So, you know, again, it's just like this self-controlling systems that he would build. And there was also um, designs for a solar energy system for London, which they called perpetual fire. And it demonstrates a sort of air conditioning aspect of it. 
And that this machine, I didn't read a whole lot about. I kind of skimmed through it, but it kind of it let it rain. It made lightning and thunder on command, quote unquote. It and then of course he also developed these fountains, freshwater supply for the city of Middleburg, which I mentioned, and. Um, he was involved in the draining of the moors around Cambridge. So again, this hydraulics and these these pumps and things. And he develops the predecessors of the barometer and the thermometer. Actually, I mean predecessors in the modern sense. He developed a barometer and a thermometer, period. There's the Drebelenge instrument, which is um, harpsichords that play on solar energy. So that like it was basically solar heated water to some degree. Boy, that sounds like Franklin. That sounds like Benjamin yeah, Franklin, I mean, it's doesn't just it? All these yeah. crazy things. <laughs> So he, had a, he, he was granted a patent in 1598 for a pump and clock with a perpetual motion. And so this was already pretty early on in his kind of career. And this kind of started his career as an, event, as an inventor. This per perpetual motion machine is really where he got his, his main reputation. The furnace that he created had similar principles of the perpetual motion machine which he constructed. So when the, when the fire began to burn too hot, the ashes got warm, and then the air in the retort expanded and pushed the quicksilver further up into the neck of the retort, which is, you know, that's a thermometer, right? And then by doing so, the, the quicksilver, like the mercury, would kind of trigger a damper to which a spring was attached, which closed down on the surface of the mercury so that as a result, less air was admitted than before, and the temperature of the fire and ashes would be reduced. Okay, so fire gets hot, create increases the volume of the mercury. The mercury, basically, long story short, the the mercury um, pushes a a damper, which lets it, lets in less air, which kind of makes the fire go down. So the fire would just oh, you can put all the fuel on you want, doesn't matter, and just enough air would get in automatically that it would stay the same temperature. This is super key for alchemists. You know, we talked about that before. You need a constant temperature you for like 40 yeah. days at a time. Yeah. So forget about doing eight-hour shifts, 24 hours a day to, you know, make sure the air is not too hot or too cold. No, you just you throw in fire. You don't worry about it. Every couple hours you get up and you throw in more fuel. Everything else regulates itself. This is this is crazy. Like it's it's insane. So so to get a little bit further into the details with his optics background, we we talk about him developing an automatic precision lens grinding machine, uh, builds upon improving the telescope's constructs of the first microscope that we talked about, and lens obscura laterna magica, and manufactures Dutch or Batavian tears. Yeah, and if he he might be the first to create a really composite. A composite microscope consisting of two convex lenses, um, maybe I'm not sure about. There, there were definitely microscopes before his time, and um, it's interesting. Like I was kind of looking up at the, I was looking up microscopes of that time period, and it's not like these little things that we put on a table like today. He got one from uh, some some duke or somebody I don't remember, but it's this big four foot brass tube that you put whatever you're looking up on the floor and then you stand above it and it's like, I don't know, three inches th thick or something. And, and you know, everyone was re were like remarking on how close up and how magnetized whatever you're looking at is. So it's kind of cool, but it's basically a telescope that you aim at the ground to look at small things. So, but yeah, I mean, it's neat stuff. So the perpetual motion machine, there were several built. There was the biggest one was for King James, and then he built a couple more smaller ones, but several for Rudolf II. And this was his, his big claim to fame, other than maybe the submarine. But the submarine almost 
expanded after his death, like the reputation for that. But in his lifetime, people were looking at this at this perpetual motion machine because everyone was like taking measurements on the holes and the the you know the the, the tubes and the valves to kind of see if they can copy it. There was one in Belgium that he built, and people would like go up and really try to mimic it. But this was just like intuitive to him. So this ties into that uh, control system thing that we talked about, um, and hydraulics and the pump and everything. So basically what it was, um, now a perpetual motion machine in its purest form cannot exist because what you're doing is you create some machine, like some, some crazy complex machine involving magnets or this or that. And the point is, is that you touch something once and then it continues forever, right? That's the idea behind it. We now know that that's not possible. Isaac Newton had something to say about that. You know, every, every um, action has an equal and opposite reaction, which means you can't just touch something once and it goes on forever. It's physically impossible. But here's what he did. So he, it was basically solar-powered. That's how you cheat, because with the, the heat of the sun, that will heat something up. And then when it cools, you know, then you refill your base, and then the, heat, the sun heats it up again. But it's not a pure perpetual motion machine because you are taking external energy, which is the solar energy, okay? But still, it was by far the closest and best that anybody had ever come up with at that time. And here's what it did. It kind of mimicked the ebb and flow of like the tides of the ocean. And basically, there was a metal disc in the middle and you couldn't see the inner workings of it. And then there was a glass tube on the outside, kind of two half donuts shaped. You'd have water in the bottom, and then it would use the sun's heat, heat up some part, and it had coils on the inside and springs. One of the, the one in Belgium broke, and as soon as it did, everyone like took it apart and was like yeah, looking at it yeah. and was like you know trying to reverse engineer it. And they could come close, but it just his was too perfect. It had to have just it had some mercury involved in it for the barometer, and it had to have just the right hole. And then it was just basically an alchemical um, principles at the time, which is you know, you, the, the heat um, evaporates, it expands the water and also the mercury, which expands the water more. And then as the water expands, um, the air would, would escape through from one valve and go into the other chamber where it would then kind of condense and go back into water. So in the warmest part of the day, uh, the sun would heat it up enough that the water would flow, like it would, you know, the tide would come in basically. And then at night, towards the evening, the tide would, the tide would go out. And, and also, you know, there was a kind of a circular aspect to it. So this was just magic to most people. Like this was like mechanics at its purest form. No one could figure it out. People were like uh, speculating on, does it need to be in a dry environment, a wet environment? Is there a reason why it is where it is in the, the one in Belgium? And yes, there, it had to have sunlight, you know, so there, there was a reason. But, and then, you know, when the sun would move, then it would go back into shadow and it would all kind of condense again. And so. Well, at the beginning of this podcast tonight, Travis, we talked about the, the, the biographical sketch of Drebbel. And to understand his, his inventions, you have to understand the man. And the man himself was a man that felt that nature was a big player in all this. Is that correct? So, oh, yeah. Yeah. So by, by emulating what was going on with the tides, the coming in and going of the tides, making that a, a, a part of what he's doing with the perpetual motion machine, that makes sense to me. You know, he, he's not reinventing the wheel, so to speak. Yeah. He's using what he's seen in, in nature in fact, and trying to copy yeah, it. His, his fountain in Middleburg um, also worked on the 
based on the tides, they, they think. It's really interesting. So it would, the tide would come in, so the water table would rise, and that would create pressure against a chamber with fresh water in it. So this was like salt water coming in or whatever. That would create pressure for the um, fresh water, and the fresh water would shoot up through, spi through pipes, and that would be the fountain. And this, was, this had a higher water pressure than anybody's ever seen before at that point. And now, can again... I, can I interject with this real quick? Because yeah. th this seems to be an important uh, question to, that I want to ask. The fountain wasn't just used for, for prettiness, was it? it? It was used for functionality. Most fountains in, this, in these times were yeah, meant for drinking. But, but this you, one actually had pressure, and it was a And put fountain. it in fresh water yeah. so you could drink it. Mm -hmm. so, so to me, that you know, most of these things that you see, even from Roman times... Fountains had a, had a, a yeah. reason. This was a big for deal. drinking In fact, water. Yeah, yeah. I, like I wonder if it's still there. I, I mean, it's it would be five hundred years old now, so probably not. But there is a fountain in Middleburg. I was just thinking about that when I was reading this. Like, wait a minute, is that that fountain? I need to go back. But yeah, so it's it, it's really cool. And again, he's just using nature and you know creating these machines with it. Um, he's also known for his chemistry, obviously. Um, otherwise, we wouldn't really be talking about him. One of his uh, big contributions, and there's pages and pages on this, on the, the source that I read. I'm gonna... um, in fact, that he, he invented a much stronger red dye. It's like the famous scarlet dye. Yeah, there's kind of a legend here that goes along with it. So the story goes that while making a colored liquid for a thermometer, Cornelis dropped a flask of aqua regia. We talked about that before. It's, um, it's an acid. On a tin windowsill and discovered that Stannis chloride makes the color of Carmen much brighter and more durable. Although Cornelis did not make m much money from this, his daughters Anna and Katerina and his son-in-law Ibrahim and Johannes Sibritus, Kuffler, again the Kufflers, set up a very successful dye works. And this, uh, this is also funny. This is again like a Tesla story. So he creates all these inventions. Other people make money off of it. Like when he, later in life when he yeah. was poor, I'm like, he created... The brightest red, you know, for, like cheap, bright red, and you didn't make any money off of it. In any case, um, yeah, there was, there was um, a big dye work set up in London, and the resulting color was this called bow dye. So if you've heard of that, that's Drebler. And the recipe for color Kuflerianos was kept a family secret, and the new bright red color was very popular in Europe. Can so again, other, other people made tons of money off of it. Can I invention. ask you another question, if this is possibly true? Yeah. This would be the perfect time frame when the, um, uh, the English armed forces were, were changing their, their coats from blue to red because of the cheaper dye issue. When we talk about the red oh, coats yeah. of the 18th yeah, century, it was, this is because they went for a cheaper dye. It wasn't because they wanted to stand out in, in, in warfare. Yeah, I, it was because it was cheaper dye to make. I skimmed over pages and pages of quotes about his dye, and it, it is kind of interesting in its own right. I mean, we mentioned on the it was previous shows, we mentioned, like, okay, what were the actual contributions of of science from alchemists. Like this is one, it, you know, we talked about Prussian blue before. Yeah. Now we, so we have blue, we have red. Um, and these are, you know, kind of, um, and, it, and this is really interesting because it is, it was really cheap ingredients for the most part. It was like some tin alloy and some other things. And there's one ingredient from the States which made the best, that's interesting side note, that made the best, um, the deepest red. But yeah, so that's, that's something that was um, a major contribution, although he didn't really profit off of it. Um, other chemistry innovations were, besides the dye, there was, um, he developed a, a method to regain silver ore, and then he also probably isolated oxygen for a submarine, which I'll, I'll, I'll come back to in detail, because that's crazy interesting also.
Um, when we talked about the pumps that he made, he also used hydraulics to make like to make like theater props, moving statues. You know, so things that would kind of seem like magic to for, to some people. And um, he, so he was also involved in plans for a new theater in London because this was you know that would kind of match his props and his his way of of the stage basically. One of the dimensions we we uh, really focused on was his pyrotechnic work, and which enhances and produces torpedoes. Um, and sea mines, and a detonator uh, with Batvian tears used um, fulminating mercury, uh, aurum fulminarum, as an explosive. There was, again, like pages and pages on this um, in that source. Um, Really interesting stuff. So here's kind of a pacifist. I thought this was weird because he actually lobbied for this to be used by the Navy, like some uh, applications for this, and they didn't really take to it. So this was his falling out with the Admiralty later in life. And I, I don't know the reasons why. So he had all kinds of inventions for like, you know, using better cannons um, and then like torpedoes and sea mines, right? So he had a gunpowder that would burn underwater. Um, to go like this guy's science fiction, if you're talking 19th, yeah. 17th century. Because to go with his summer, so first he had the submarine, and then he's like, okay, but you could also have, you could use these as war machines in this and this way. And then you could also have exploding things that are projectiles. That's, that's a torpedo. None of them were really used, as far as I can tell, so I, I kind of left some of it out. But again, it's just to show that he was a very in, innovative guy and um, probably had more potential than the people around him realized in some ways. But he did work with the Navy, the British Navy, the, you know, and, and all that. Yeah, if, if you want to look up some of his works, there's, there are some that still survive today. There's one that is... It was written in Dutch originally, but it's a short treatise of the nature of elements, and it was translated into German and Latin and all that. And he was involved in the invention of mercury fulminate, which we just mentioned. This is like a super alchemical thing. So he he found out that mixtures of spiritus vini with mercury and silver in aqua fortis could explode. So that's just you know some alchemical language right there. But let's let's get into the submarine because this is this is this is the fact of the podcast right here. This is what's just unbelievable about his lifetime so I, I think you can still see a replica of his submarine in, in london so he's probably much more known uh he's probably much more well known in london than than outside of because you see this 17th century replica of a submarine you know you start asking questions um yeah so this was again while he was working for the english royal navy he built the first navigable submarine in 1620 and he was again standing on the shoulders of giants because we there was William Bourne's design in 1578, which um, he kind of designed a steerable submarine, but it was never built. So between 1620 and 1624, Drebbel successfully built and tested two more submarines, each one bigger than the last. And the third, the final one, had six oars and could carry 16 passengers. Now, this model was demonstrated to King's, King James I in person and several thousand Londoners, so it was quite the spectacle. And the submarine stayed submerged for three hours, and there, there's some quotes later on about this. It's kind of interesting. Like, everyone thought they were dead. Because three hours is... Yeah. Everyone yeah. just thought they were dead. They started going home, you know. And so it could travel from Westminster to Greenwich and back. And it could cruise at about a depth of, like, 12 to 15 feet, 4 to 5 meters. And supposedly, Drebel even took James in his submarine on a test dive beneath the Thames, making James I the first monarch to travel underwater. Wow. How do you like <laughs> that? Cool. apples, Yeah. Um, however, the Admiral Tilly just never really got on board with this, which I 
can't figure it out because maybe they said, well, what do we do with three hours or 15 feet? Mm. No, if, if you advance that technology, you, you know, and Rebel even wrote, like, well, you go into an enemy port and you just attach explosives to the, I mean, what do you mean? So let me explain. I, I think I can kind of understand some of the skepticism. And this was because even what I just said, like all these stories, especially the quotes that we're about to read, are probably exaggerations. So some historians believe that really it was at most semi-submersible. I don't believe this. I think it went underwater from reading some of the descriptions. I think it was completely submersible, but that it was only able to travel down the Thames by force of the current, which could be. It did have oars, and the oars were attached to the inside by leather. And also, to be clear, we're not really talking about a submarine submarine. It had an open bottom, which was more like a sailable diving bell, yeah. right? So doesn't matter if it I don't I, I do believe it was completely submersible, which means at that point, you you know, you're invisible. You go into enemy harbors. There was um, some of the quotes said like, you know, they could weather a storm and, you know, like nothing was there. Here's one quote we have. And this is during his lifetime. Um, so I, I guess I'd give these a little bit more weight, even though some of these are clearly exaggerated. The later ones are even more exaggerated. So, But here, Faba, a German savant living in Italy in 1625, he's, he's kind of known in his own right, he says, quote, Persons who have sailed under the sea in that ship invented by the remarkable genius of a Dutchman, Cornelius Drebbel, and constructed in London, England, where it may be seen even today, well, at, at that at, time. At that time in 1625. Yeah. There's a replica now, so you, you can kind of see it. Have sworn me solemnly, again, so this is, a friend of a friend told me that, <laughs> but have sworn to me solemnly that while a storm was raging on the surface, deep down in the sea, they experienced not the slightest difficulty. The ship carries 24 people. Again, we, it's an exaggeration. Eight of them row, while the rest remain in their little, little cubicles. For 24 hours, they suffer no lack of air and live contentedly on that which is locked in the little vessel. After this period of time has elapsed, they go up to the surface of the sea, and when the cover of the boat has been unbolted and left open for a short time, they take in fresh air, upon which they are able, after putting the lid on the ship again, to dive down as deep into the water as the captain wishes to do. <clears throat> no, not true. Even to the depth of 50 fathoms, should he so desire. And what will surprise you still more, they steer by the compass and know where they are, and they move the ship with the greatest ease by means of oars. But what almost passes belief is this, that part of the ship where the rowers sit has no bottom, so that the water is visible all the time to these rowers, who are nevertheless not in the least afraid, as sitting on their seats a little above the water, they never touch it with their feet. So again, it's, it's more like a diving bell than a, than a true submarine, but regardless, that's, that's pretty impressive. And then Constantine Huygens writes in his autobiography in 1631, Worth all the rest put together is the little ship in which he calmly dived under the water while he kept the king and several thousand Londoners in the greatest suspense. The great majority of these already thought that the man who had very cleverly remained invisible to them for three hours, as rumor has it, had perished. When he suddenly rose to the surface a considerable distance from where he had dived down, bringing with him the several companions of his dangerous adventure to witness to the fact they had experienced no trouble or fear under the water, but had sat on the bottom when they so desired and had ascended when they wished to do so, that they had sailed whithersoever they had in mind, rising as much near to the surface or again diving as much deeper as it pleased them to do so, without even being deprived of light, yea, 
even that they had done in the belly of that whale all the things people are used to do in the air, and this without any trouble. From all this, it is not even hard to imagine what would be the usefulness of this bold invention in time of war. If in this manner, a thing which I have repeatedly heard Drebel assert, enemy ships lying safely at anchor could be secretly attacked and sunk unexpectedly by means of a battering ram, an instrument of which hideous use is made nowadays in the capturing of the gates and bridges of towns. All right, so then in 1645, this is after his death, we find Cornelis van der Wode of Alkmaar telling the following story. He made a ship with which one could row underwater and sail from Westminster to Greenwich, a distance of two Dutch miles. Yes, even five or six miles, as far as one wished. And in the ship it is possible to see without a candle and to read the Bible or any other book which ship was to be seen lying in the Thames, London's River, until a few years ago. If you want to read a Bible underwater, there you go. Treble's your man. Now the cool part is that Treble determined the depth to which his boat had descended by means of a quicksilver barometer, like a mercury barometer. The depth that this could reach is clearly exaggerated all the time because they just didn't know how much water pressure there really was very quickly as soon as you go down. Um, again, there were divers and there was diving bells and that kind of thing. But I think they really underestimated that if you go below like 15 feet even, you know, like let's say 5 meters, that the water pressure is so much that the oars don't help anymore. There's, there's no getting out of it. Once you reach a very shallow distance, there's, just, there's no getting back to the surface. Time writes in 1612, in his little work on perpetual motion, that the bolt in the perpetuum mobile was filled with a fiery spirit extracted out of the mineral matter. This expression suggests a preparation of oxygen from saltpeter. Yeah, so this is interesting because there's a lot of speculation. Yeah, there's a couple quotes about this, but, but basically the gist is this, that there's a lot of speculation that he, he was able to um, isolate oxygen in some way that he could release it into, the, into a submarine. So Just when he thought the air was getting too stale. Yeah, so right? when the air was starting to get bad, he could just open this little flask and refresh the air in the submarine. Now again, how much of this exaggeration, I don't know, but it did give the inspiration later, there's a quote here from Robert Boyle, that the, the Royal Society of, of England like grasped onto this and said, hey, Drebbel did it, it's possible, let's figure this out. Yeah, Kepler said something about it, but so it's, just, it's just interesting that that is one thing he kept a secret, supposedly, and took with him to his grave, which means it might have not happened at all. Right. But still, like the idea that that's how his... So first of all, as these submarine stories were embellished, we just heard one that they said he could stay underwater for 24 hours. Not true. No. But even if you had a little bit of extra oxygen, not true. Um, and then you just open the hatch and then it's all good again. That wouldn't be true because you'd need to refill your oxygen thing. There's no, yeah, so, at this point, there's no filters in there. And, and, and basically what you're breathing out, carbon dioxide would overpower any kind of amount of tubes that you would have to bring in more oxygen yeah. to balance it out. Uh, th these, are so you, these are problems yeah. that the So you could diesel, add oxygen to it, but no. Yeah, I mean, well, these are the problems that the, the diesel submariners were having during World War I. Mm -hmm. All right, remember, oh, yeah. I mean, they, had, they had to submerge quite a bit before they would go into attack mode because they didn't have the oxygen. Yeah, oh yeah. So, yeah, so uh, it is interesting. That even if he didn't really do it, it, he, graded, it he had the reputation of having done it, which created inspiration for later people to actually isolate oxygen. 
Kepler, one of our favorite folks we've talked about before, also heard and wrote of this in 1607. If he can create a new spirit, Kepler says, by means of which he can move and keep in motion his instrument without weights or propelling power, he will then be Apollo, in my opinion. Yeah, and this was specifically about, he didn't say oxygen, but he's talking about, you know, creating the air that is the, the air of life. Basically. And basically call him godlike. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. Pretty good words from Kepler. Yeah, and so Robert Boyle, this is 1627 to 1691. So he's, you know, the whole Royal Society and all that thing. So he says, and this is taken from parts of his quote, basically, um, quote, that this is not the whole body of the air, but a certain quintessence, as chemists speak, chemists with a Y, or spiritualist part of it that makes it fit for respiration, which being spent... The remaining grosser body or carcass, if I may so call it, yeah, he may, of the air is unable to cherish the vital flame residing in the heart. Okay. Uh, <laughs> so that for aught I could gather, besides the mechanical contri contrivance of his vessel, he had a chemical liquor, which he accounted the chief secret of his submarine navigation. For when, from time to time, he perceived that the finer and purer part of the air was consumed, or overclogged by the respiration and steams of those that went in, in his ship, steams, ugh, sorry, yeah. he would by unstopping a vessel full of this liquor speedily restore the troubled air such as such a proportion of vital parts as would make it again for a good while fit for respiration, whether by dissipating or, or, or precipitating the grosser exhalations or by some other intelligible way. Having made it my business to learn what this strange liquor may be, they constantly affirmed me that Drebbel would never disclose the liquor to any, nor so much as tell the matter whereof he made it, to above one person who himself assured me what it was. So here we say, Boyle, he's like, Drebbel didn't tell anybody, didn't tell a single soul, but he told one guy, and that guy told me. And so here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do it now. <laughs> Um, so yeah, this, there's, there's another like related quote in, in the minutes of the Royal Society where, um, in the, in the minutes of the dated May 6th, 1669, quote, Mr. Daniel Cox mentioned that Cornelius Drebbel pretended to have a certain liquor to supply the want of fresh air in the boat, which he had made to go underwater with, end quote. So again, like whether, whether he had something or didn't have something, the reputation was that he did, and therefore the Royal Society was going to damn well figure out what it is. So, and oxygen was uh, isolated not that long after. So it's it's pretty interesting stuff. Um, so yeah, as we're wrapping up the program tonight, let's look at some of the honors that are bestowed upon him. Um, for one, there's a small lunar crater that has been named after him on the moon. Um, Cornelius Drebbel also had been honored on a postage stamp issued by the Postal Service of both mail uh, of both Mali and of the Netherlands in 2010. The portrayal, the portrayal of Cornelius Drebbel is all, and his submarine can also briefly be seen in The Four Musketeers from 1974, that, that film. A small leather-clad submersible surfaces off the coast of England, and the top opens in a clamshell wise revealing Cornelius Drebbel and the Duke of Buckingham. <laughs> yeah. Alright, so maybe I should go see that. It's a 1974 movie, yeah. but maybe it works. Uh, Drebbel is also honored with an episode of the cartoon Sea Lab 2021, I actually enjoyed that. That was about 10 years ago that was on, wasn't it? Uh, during a submarine rescue of workers in a research station in the Arctic. A German U-boat captain fired a pistol in celebration at that mention of Drebbel, of shouts of, 
Zeke Heil, Cornelius Drebbel. Oh, boy. Oh, boy. Here we go. <laughs> <laughs> also on C-Lab 2, <laughs> 2, 2, 2021, C, uh, Season 3 DVD, Cornelius Drebbel um, has two DVDs commemorating uh, devoted to this life, his life. Um, so, yeah, pretty interesting if you want if you watch that show. I think it was on the Comedy Central or... Uh, okay, yeah, sounds right. Or yeah. Cartoon Network. Okay, yeah, it's on yeah, Cartoon yeah. Network back in the States. It, in the Dutch 80 Years War comic, Jill Goo. Drebbel is a, and I, I'm sorry if that <laughs> I have to say I don't know if that's the right pronunciation. Jules de Gu. Yeah, Jules de Gu. Uh, Drebbel is supporting a character uh, to the uh, war hero Gil. Uh, he is drawn in a cra- he, he is drawn as a crazy inventor, similar to Q in the James Bond series. His submarine plays a role in that comic as well. Yeah, here's a, here's another one that we've mentioned over and over on the show on the show. A special manuscript known as the Voynich manuscript. We've mentioned it several times, Many so I'm times not gonna so. I'm not gonna repeat what it is, but um, Richard Santa Coloma has speculated that the Voynich Manuscript may be connected to Drebbel, initially suggesting it was Drebbel's cipher notebook on microscopy and alchemy. There's a later hypothesizing that it was the fictional tie-in to Francis Bacon, which we talked about Francis Bacon's connection and all that. But again, in, the, in Francis Bacon's utopian novel New Atlantis, there's some Drebbel-related items like a submarine, a perpetual clock, um, that are said to appear, so... Eh, there's a connection there. It wouldn't be a proper alchemy <laughs> podcast if we don't mention the Voynich Manuscript. So so this was a really interesting read. I love researching this guy. I learned a lot. Um, this guy really is kind of the, the Emmett Brown of um, uh, innovators here. And thank you very much, Steve C., again, for sending that in. Again, uh, there's, there's another show we have recorded I'm about to publish from another listener. And I really appreciate this because, um, you know, I, I, I have a long list of alchemists I want to talk about. But if someone points me in the right direction and says, you know, this guy should be the top of your list, then um, I'll, I'll listen. And in this case, absolutely, this is much appreciated. So thank you very much. Thanks. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Mm. 